everyone, and welcome back to Curtain Call, a podcast where we talk about Broadway musicals and their depictions of gender. I am your host, Jamie Corder, and I am so glad you decided to join me again. Let's get this show on the road. If you missed last week's episode, we continued our conversation of the contemporary age of Broadway in the 1980s. During that podcast, I challenged you, the listeners, to critically analyze two Tony Award-winning musicals and determine whether or not you think they should be classified as feminist shows. The productions up for debate were Les Miserables, having opened in 1987, and The Phantom of the Opera, which opened in 1988. For today's episode, we're going to be wrapping up the contemporary age by discussing two musicals I absolutely adore, the 1992 production of Falsettos and the 1996 production of Rent. Now, I didn't just choose these shows because they were some of my favorites. Trust me, trying to narrow my choices down to just two musicals from the 1990s was extremely difficult. Seriously, so many amazing productions came out towards the end of the contemporary age. I ultimately chose Falsettos and Rent for a few reasons. One, both shows are set during the AIDS-slash-HIV epidemic in New York City. Granted, Falsettos is set in the late 1970s and early 1980s, when the crisis was just beginning, and Rent is set in the early 1990s, during the aftermath of the first wave of the outbreak. This crisis was such a significant, life-altering event that I'm genuinely surprised by how rarely it is talked about on a Broadway stage, especially considering New York City was one of the epicenters for transmission. Falsettos and Rent, as I have learned, are the only musicals to touch upon this heartbreaking subject. Plays seem to be more likely to write plots around the illness. I'm sure some of you, theater fans or not, have at least heard of Tony Kushner's famous play, Angels in America. While I am a huge fan of Rent, I feel like it's praised for being the only musical about the AIDS-slash-HIV epidemic, and when there are only two musicals that comment on the event, both should receive equal admiration. I mean, Falsettos did come out four years before Rent, and in my opinion, depicts a more realistic portrayal of gay life and life in general in New York City at the time. But I digress. Two, both shows provide social commentary on sexuality and gender expression in the late 20th century. Gay and lesbian relationships are at the center of both musicals, and in Rent, we are introduced to a character labeled as a drag queen. Now, in 2021, this character would most likely identify and be described as a trans woman instead but more on this later. I'm going to guess that most of you are at least familiar with Rent and have little knowledge of falsettos, which is completely okay. I'm looking forward to introducing you to this amazing show. Actually, let's start our discussion of this 1992 hidden gem right now. A surprising fact I learned when researching the plot of Falsettos is that the 1992 musical actually started as three hour-long one-act musicals before it was combined into one show. In 1979, composer William Finn wrote In Trousers, which focused on the leading male character Marvin, who, as a husband and father, is questioning his sexuality. Two years later, in 1981, Finn adds to the story with March of the Falsettos. In this one act, we continue to learn about Marvin and his extended family, as he tries to find self-understanding, inner peace, and a life with a happily ever after ending. Almost a decade later, in the wake of the AIDS-slash-HIV epidemic, Finn completes the trilogy with Falsetto Land, the final installment of Marvin's life, where his son prepares for his bar mitzvah and Marvin's lover comes down with an unknown illness, known to the audience as AIDS. 
Finn, along with his co-book writer, James Lappin, combined the two one-acts, March of the Falsettos and Falsetto Land, into one big musical, which, as we know, turned out to be Falsettos. Now that you know the origins behind this production, let's dive a bit deeper and learn more about the cast of characters and the conflicts that occur in Falsettos. Now, when we've done plot recaps in the past, I typically use the Wikipedia plot summary and kind of write it in my own style. But for time's sake this week, I thought it would just be easier if I read the plot summary directly from Wikipedia, because as much as I like to think that I have a wealth of Broadway knowledge, I don't remember every detail of these shows. I think it's beneficial that you guys get the full summary rather than just the small snippets that I remember from my own memory. So... Here's the plot recap of Falsettos. In 1979, New York City, Marvin, his 10-year-old son Jason, his psychiatrist Mendel, and his boyfriend Whizzer are in the midst of an argument. Marvin steps forward to explain his situation. He has left his wife Trina for his male lover Whizzer, but no one is happy with his attempts to integrate Whizzer into the family. At Marvin's suggestion, Trina visits Mendel and explains that she is having trouble accepting the end of her marriage and her failure to be a perfect wife. Mendel, instantly attracted to her, tries to reassure her that she is not to blame. Marvin and Whizzer note that they have very little in common, but are intensely attracted to each other, and worry that their feelings for one another are waning. In a therapy session with Mendel, Marvin discusses his relationship with Whizzer and his failed relationship with Trina. Jason is also worried that because of Marvin's sexuality, he will turn out to be gay too, and his parents suggest that he also speak to Mendel. Marvin and Wizard fight over Wizard's lack of enthusiasm for monogamy and Marvin's attempt to force him into the role of housewife, while Trina is concerned that Wizard is taking her place in the family and has a bit of a mental breakdown. Now, if you've seen the most recent revival, the 2016 revival, you know that Stephanie J. Block absolutely kills Trina's number, I'm Breaking Down. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend looking it up. It is absolutely hilarious. Trina requests that Mendel provide in-home therapy for Jason, and after getting to know her and Jason through these sessions, Mendel clumsily proposes to Trina. She accepts, sparking jealousy in Marvin. Trina is frustrated with the male-dominated world she lives in and the immaturity of the four men around her. Marvin, Mendel, Wizard, and Jason break into the classic number March of the Falsettos, which could be described as a hymn to masculinity. The three adults sing in falsetto to match Jason's prepubescent voice. Now, if you've never watched this scene before, it kind of feels like an odd fever dream, to be quite honest. When I remember when I watched it the first time, they're all dressed in like day glow outfits with those hats that have the, the spinners on them and like neon orange shoes. This was all in the revival. It definitely feels like you're on some type of drug, to be quite honest. Trina recollects herself and calms down from her frustrations in her reprise of Trina's song. Marvin tries to teach Wizard how to play chess, but bitterness and ill feeling boil over. They fight and break up. As he packs, Wizard reflects on his life and relationship with Marvin. He has been used and abused by other men because of his looks his whole life, and Wizard finally decides that he doesn't want to live like that anymore. Meanwhile, Trina and Mendel move in together. After receiving Mendel and Trina's marriage announcement, Marvin breaks down in rage and slaps his ex-wife. Shocked by his actions, everyone confesses that they never intended to feel so deeply about the other people in their lives, and they accept the pain that love can bring. In the wake of the destruction of his relationships with both Wizard and Trina, Marvin sits Jason down for a talk and tells him that no matter what kind of man Jason turns out to be, Marvin will always be there for him. End of Act 1.
We move into Act 2, which is the second show in Finn's original trilogy, also known as Falsetto Land. It is 1981, two years later, and we are introduced to two new people, Marvin's lesbian neighbors, Dr. Charlotte, an internist, and Cordelia, a non-Jewish caterer specializing in Jewish cuisine. Marvin observes that it's about time to grow up and get over himself. He has managed to maintain his relationship with Jason and now shares split custody with Trina, who has since married Mendel. He has not seen Wizard for two years and has not gotten over him. Marvin and Trina begin planning Jason's bar mitzvah, and each character has a different opinion regarding how it should be celebrated. Later, at Jason's Little League baseball game, Jason ponders which girls he will invite to the party. Wizard arrives at the baseball game after being invited by Jason, and Marvin cautiously asks Wizard on a date just as Jason manages to hit the ball. An interlude ends with everyone reflecting on how wonderful life is. You know that means that something bad's coming, right? Soon afterwards, Marvin and Trina argue at length about the logistics of the bar mitzvah, which makes Jason want to call it off. Mendel consoles the boy, telling him that everybody hates his parents at this age, but everyone eventually matures and hates them a little less. Marvin sits in bed one morning, looking at the sleeping wizard, and wonders at how much he loves him. Dr. Charlotte, meanwhile, is becoming aware that young gay men in the city arrive at the hospital sick with a mysterious illness that no one understands. Wizard collapses suddenly during a game of racquetball and is hospitalized. Trina, meanwhile, is disturbed to find out how upset she is at his condition. In Wizard's hospital room, everyone gathers to cheer him up, commenting on how good he looks. But Jason, in childish honesty, tells Wizard that he looks awful. Mendel and Trina sit Jason down to inform him that Wizard may not recover. They give him the option of canceling the bar mitzvah. Marvin sits in Wizard's hospital room, soon joined by Cordelia and Dr. Charlotte, and the four unlikely lovers reaffirm their commitment to each other, despite Wizard's worsening situation. As Wizard's condition deteriorates, Jason turns to God, offering to get bar mitzvah if Wizard gets better. Dr. Charlotte explains to Marvin that something bad is actually happening and heavily implies that Marvin may become sick as well. Wizard's illness becomes terminal and he resolves to face death with dignity and courage. Suddenly, everyone bursts into the hospital room. Jason has had an epiphany. He wants to hold the ceremony in Wizard's hospital room. As Jason completes his recitation, Wizard collapses and is taken from the room, followed by all but Marvin. Left alone, Marvin asks the departed Wizard what his life would be if they had not loved each other. Wizard's spirit appears and asks if Marvin regrets their relationship and Marvin resolutely states he would do it again, and again, and again. Marvin's family and friends surround him, and he finally loses his composure and breaks down in their arms. Mendel steps forward, tearfully declaring that this is where we take a stand. Now, in the 2016 revival, Mendel and Jason take this piece of the set, a piece that greatly resembles a tombstone, and they place it on the stage. And as Marvin is comforted by his friends and family, Jason places a king chess piece on the top of the gravestone, and the lights go dim. Now, I know the ending is a little obscure. We do get to see some type of closure, but we don't really know what happens with Marvin. And unfortunately, there isn't like a follow-up show. Vin never wrote a follow-up show. So Marvin's fate is kind of up for interpretation. The audience kind of gets to determine if he has a happy ending or a not-so-happy ending. But it is heavily implied in the script that Marvin probably does come down with AIDS as well. You know, it was an, it was an unknown time they didn't even know what to call this disease you know that dr charlotte just says that young gay men are coming in who are very ill and they don't know what it is they don't have you know 
the proper ways to medicate or manage this disease yet. So unfortunately, it's very likely that Marvin probably came down with AIDS as well and also passed away. But it's really up to audiences interpretation. If you want to believe that he has, you know, a happy life after all that he's been through, after working really hard to build back this tight-knit family despite some of his shortcomings, that's up to you. I like to believe that, but I also know the reality of the AIDS slash HIV epidemic and how devastating it was. So it's up to you. Now you're probably going to ask, how are we going to tie gender into this show? And if I'm being quite honest, it was really hard at first to find like really good academic sources or even like arguments or discussions that tie gender into the show, especially because it's such... It's a well-known show, but there's not as much discussion and discourse on it as, say, Rent, who is a little more, you know, well-known. But I did find a couple points that I just wanted to talk about today. It's not going to be like in our other episodes where it's this long, drawn-out, you know, thing that we just focus on one topic. It's going to be a couple small ones. So bear with me, okay? And we're going to take a slightly different approach for this episode. Um, I've had some friends listen to my past episodes, and they said that they like it when I'm a little more loose in my myself and not so scripted so instead of having a fully written out podcast script for our discussion I kind of just have some bullet points and some quotes that I want to talk about and I hope you enjoy this more fluid freeform structure for this episode. All right let's start our conversation about gender and falsettos. To start our conversation I want to talk about the family itself. I want to talk about Trina, Marvin, and Jason and their kind of their relationship together and the family that they build beyond just the three of them. You know, Falsettos was created in the early 1990s, and it still was common for this nuclear family to be around, you know, father, mother, two and a half kids, a dog, a white picket fence. That was still kind of the traditional normal quote-unquote normal family dynamic and you see Trina, Marvin, and Jason who aren't normal. They aren't conventional. They're not traditional and really their family was ahead of its time. Even in the show they acknowledge that in one of the earlier songs uh, titled My Father's a Homo slash Everybody Tells Jason to See a Psychiatrist, Trina says that it's not normal for Jason to play chess by himself and he retorts with what is normal and Trina defeated replies I wouldn't know because their family is not normal. Even by today's standards you know it's just starting to become normal for say a mother and father to split up get divorced and then one of the parents, you know, finding out and discovering that they're gay. While I was digging around for research on unconventional family settings and dynamics today, I actually stumbled upon this article by writer Claire Hogue titled, What's a Normal Family Anyway? In her article, she talks about her own family and family dynamic, and it's quite similar to the family in Falsettos. In her article, she states, quote, my mother, my half-sibling's mother, and our father were friends living in the Bay Area in the 90s. At the time, both women were in their mid-30s and wanted to have children, but neither had had a long-term partner. My father, a gay man and also parentless, agreed to be their donor and, if things worked out, involved in their children's lives. 
end quote. Now, by today's standards, Hoag's family is still pretty unconventional, but it's not uncommon for us to see unconventional, unorthodox families anymore. For example, the Pew Research Center found in 2015 that the number of two-parent households has been in steady decline since the 1960s, dropping from 87% of households in 1960 to 69% in 2014. The report also notes that the declining share of children living in what is often deemed a quote-unquote traditional family has been largely supplanted by the rising shares of children living with single or cohabiting parents. For years, families have been coming in all shapes and sizes with two moms, two dads, a mom and a dad who live together but aren't married, you know, single parents. So Hogue and the family presented in falsettos, they're actually not uncommon. They're just not represented largely in our media. While Trina, Marvin, and Jason's family dynamic is definitely not conventional, the family did follow in the trend of rising divorce rates throughout the late 20th century. While researching for this episode of Curtain Call, I was looking for statistics of divorce rates in the 1980s, and while I know you're supposed to use sources that are more current and up-to-date, I found this really cool report from David Knox that was published in April of 1980. It was published by the National Council on Family Relations and it's titled Trends in Marriage and the Family, the 1980s. Now in this report, Knox talks about the rising rates of divorce in America and how they were thinking at the time of creating a national center for the study of divorce. An interesting statistic from this report found that if the current trends continued back in the 1980s, over one half of Americans' populace will have been directly touched by divorce before the turn of the century. Despite the entire family dynamic being quite unorthodox for a family of the late 1970s and early 1980s, in addition to following the trend of rising divorce rates, the characters, some of them, continue to play into their assigned gender roles. While I could probably break down each character and talk about the different ways that they play to their assigned gender roles, I really want to focus on Marvin because despite being the person to break the family up and kind of cause all the issues in the show, he still wants to stick to the patriarchal figure within the family dynamic, which I think is really interesting. To start this like character analysis of Marvin, I want to focus on the musical's second song, which is called A Tight-Knit Family in which Marvin kind of lays the groundwork for the audience. He tells us the situation, what's going on. We learn that he left Trina for Wizard, and now he's trying to build back this family that he used to have. And in the song, he sings, quote, but I want a tight-knit family. I want a group that harmonizes. I want my wife and kid and friend to pretend that time will mend our pain. I swear we're going to come through it. I fear we'll probably fight. But nothing's impossible, live by your wit. Kid, wife, and lover will have to admit, I was right, I cushioned the fall, I want it all, end quote. Now, what I find interesting in these lyrics is that Marvin, despite being the one to break up the family, is still acting like nothing ever happened. He's still calling Trina his wife, which she's not. He's calling Wizard his lover, which really 
in that context, if you're still have the family together, if he still is pretending that he's married to Trina, Wazer is basically like his quote unquote mistress, his like side piece. Marvin isn't acting like he's now dating Wizer. He's still acting like I'm the man of the family. I'm the husband. I'm the father. So I still want to sit down to dinner with my quote-unquote wife, technically now his ex-wife, his son, and his lover, Wizard, and he wants, you know, he wants it all. He still thinks he's entitled to have what he wants. It's a very patriarchal, traditional, masculine role way of thinking, if you know what I mean. And when he's removed from the family, when it's just him and Wizard, he still tries to assume this, like, traditional masculine role of provider, and he even attempts to force Wizard into the role of pretty boy homemaker. He tries to make Wizard into the pseudo-wife. You know, it's always joked about, like, who wears the pants in the relationship and gay relationships, who's the woman, um, and that's what Marvin's doing. He's trying to make Wizard into basically his wife, having him pick up after Marvin's dirty clothes and forcing him to make dinner. And ultimately, it's this pressure that causes Wizard to leave Marvin in Act 1. Even though Marvin has started this new relationship with Wizard that is separate from the relationship he had with him while he was still married to Trina, we see that he's still not over Trina. He's not letting her go. We saw that in the, the lyrics that I just said before. He still refers to her as his wife. And while they're no longer married... He gets insanely jealous when he finds out that Mendel is trying to marry her. Now, writer Scott Miller of an article called Inside March of the Falsettos believes that this could go back to Marvin's competitiveness. Maybe he can't stand that Trina has found a new spouse and he can't even hold together his relationship with Wizard long enough to get to the point of getting married again. Now, when Falsettos was revived just five years ago, it brought up a whole new group of theater critics to kind of comment on Marvin's character. Now, I saw a really interesting review from writer Charles Isherwood, and in his review, he states, quote, Marvin is possessive, critical, irked by the younger, boyishly handsome wizard's lack of enthusiasm for monogamy, end quote. You know, despite being a gay man, Marvin is still trying to fit into society's ideals that you need to be married. And, you know, being a gay man in the late 1970s and early 80s was not conventional, so Marvin doesn't have to be playing into these conventionalities. But, like, the fact that Wizard wants to sleep around and doesn't want to settle down with Marvin really frustrates him. Marvin, who wants it all, isn't getting all that he wants. He isn't getting the tight-knit family because Trina is seemingly moving on. He isn't getting, you know, time with Jason because Jason kind of sides with his mother. And he doesn't get Wizard because he's being too controlling of Wizard. So he's really left with nothing. Now, I've watched Falsettos a few times, and I never really knew why I was so frustrated with Marvin's character. When describing him to friends, I would always say, like, yeah, he's sort of the main character, sort of the protagonist, but he's also sort of the antagonist because he seems to be the one that's always causing drama and starting fights. And now I realize that I have this love-hate relationship with his character because he's greedy and he tries to assert his male dominance over everyone else by trying to control their lives in order to have the perfect life that he wants. 
Now, on the flip side, on the other side of the parenting duo, we have Trina, who does kind of stick with the traditional gender roles of the time, but she also takes an unprecedented step by accepting her changing family dynamic. Now, she was brought up at a time when it was believed that marriage is the primary goal for any woman, and she did everything right. She got married, she had a kid, she kept the house in order, she put up with all of Marvin's abuses and neuroses. But when Marvin leaves her for another man, the carpet's kind of like pulled out from underneath her. She only knows her role as wife and mother in the traditional sense, so what will her life look like now that things are disrupted? I want to circle back to Miller's article where he describes Trina as lacking direction now. Men have always controlled her. First her father, then Marvin, and thankfully Mendel takes his place. It kind of reminds me of Christine in Phantom of the Opera, where at first she's controlled by her father, then by the Phantom, then by Raoul. While Trina doesn't exactly like this dynamic, it's familiar, it's safe, and though she may complain, she won't ever take steps to change it much. We see that in her ballad Trina's song, where she complains about all the happy men that rule the world, and the ones who grow physically but don't mature. In this instance, Trina's kind of playing to her assigned gender role. She just kind of accepts what happens to her and doesn't put up much of a fuss about it. Still, once she is remarried to Mendel, she continues to play devoted wife and dedicated mother to Jason, and even sometimes she mothers Wizard now and then, possibly because she knows what it's like to be in his shoes. Despite all of this upheaval, Trina remains strong. She's described as someone who holds to the ground as the ground keeps shifting. During these tough times, she's also forced to make some wrenching decisions, especially concerning her son. You know, it's the late 1970s, early 1980s. It's still a difficult time for people to accept the fact that someone was gay, especially someone who you thought loved you, you know, someone you were married to for a long time. And while she definitely starts off resenting and feeling hatred towards Marvin at the end of their relationship together, she doesn't let this stand in her son's way of having a relationship with his father. Sure, Jason's not too pleased with the situation either at first, but at least there is an open path for communication between the son and the father. In 1995, stage director Myrona Delaney was putting on her own production of Falsettos, and in an article written by Mark Challen-Smith, she talks about Trina's character and how the difficult decisions she had to make were ultimately for the best. She states, quote, she can pull her boy away or embrace it. What we as viewers can learn from that is that we can be enriched by components that we don't always expect or accept right off. Trina works through this crisis, and the result is that Jason turns out to be one of the smartest people in the show. While Trina's character physically conforms to her conventional gender role as mother and wife, emotionally, she is quite progressive in accepting her ex-husband's sexuality and encouraging her son to continue his relationship with his father. Altogether, I think Falsettos does an amazing job of capturing a family who's facing modern-day issues. The narrative and relationships shared in the show feel like they were plucked straight from someone's living room. To me, Falsettos offers a more realistic look into the lives of those living during the AIDS slash HIV epidemic than say our next musical, Rent. we talked about how falsettos came to be. But what about Rent? What was the inspiration behind this 1996 classic? 
As a rent head myself, I thought I knew all about its origins, but I've recently learned that there may be a second source material used. If you're part of the Broadway community, you might know that Rent's writer Jonathan Larson is said to have used the 1896 opera La Boheme by Italian composer Giacomo Puccini as his inspiration for the show. The musical's narrative, characters, and even some plot points are loosely based on the opera. For instance, in La Boheme, Puccini's cast of characters are a group of starving artists living in 19th century Paris during the tuberculosis epidemic. Meanwhile, Larson's modern rendition tells of a small group of penniless artists struggling to make ends meet in New York City during the AIDS-HIV epidemic of the late 20th century. Since watching Rent for the first time in 8th grade, this was the tale I was told. Throughout my various theater classes and workshops, my teachers always said that Rent was a modern-day version of La Boheme. But, and this is a big but, when I was researching for this episode of Curtain Call, I learned that Larson may have plagiarized another prolific playwright's work in order to create Rent. Now, before we talk about the scary similarities between Larson's work and the novel he supposedly ripped off, let's talk about Rent's plot, as I think it'll help emphasize how identical the two pieces of art are. We start Act 1 on Christmas Eve in Manhattan's East Village. We meet two roommates, Mark, a filmmaker, and Roger, a rock musician, who struggle to stay warm and produce their art. Mark's mother leaves a voicemail wishing him a Merry Christmas and trying to comfort him since his ex-girlfriend Maureen recently dumped him. Their friend Tom Collins, a gay anarchist professor of computer-age philosophy at New York University, calls and plans to surprise them at their apartment, but is mugged before entering. At the same time, Mark and Roger's former roommate and friend Benny, who has since become their harsh new landlord, has reneged on an early agreement and now demands last year's rent before shutting down their electrical power. However, Mark and Roger rebel and resolve not to pay the rent they cannot pay. Meanwhile, Angel, a cross-dressing street drummer, presently out of drag, finds Collins wounded in an alley and tends to him. The two are immediately attracted to each other, each learning that the other is HIV positive. It is revealed that Roger also has HIV. He contracted it from his last girlfriend, who died by suicide after learning of her diagnosis, causing Roger to fall into a deep depression. Mark leaves the loft while Roger stays home, trying to compose on his guitar without success. He wishes desperately to write one last song to be remembered by before he dies. Their neighbor Mimi, who is an exotic dancer and junkie, shows up at Roger and Mark's apartment flirting with Roger in the process. However, he is clearly hesitant to return her affections. At last, the missing Collins enters the apartment, presenting Angel, who is now in full drag. Mark comes home and Benny arrives, speaking of Maureen's upcoming protest against his plans to evict the homeless from a lot where he is hoping to build a cyber art studio. Benny offers that if they convince Maureen to cancel the protest, Mark and Roger can officially remain rent-free tenants. However, the two rebuff Benny's offer and he leaves. Mark leaves the loft again to go help Maureen with the sound equipment for the protest, unexpectedly meeting Joanne, a lawyer and Maureen's new girlfriend, at the stage. Initially hesitant with each other, the two eventually bond over their shared distrust of Maureen's gaslighting and promiscuous behaviors. Mark then joins Collins and Angel to film their HIV support group meeting, while Mimi attempts to seduce Roger alone in his apartment. Roger is extremely upset by Mimi's intrusion, demanding she leave him alone and resisting any romantic feelings he may have for her. After Mimi leaves, Roger reflects on his fear of dying an undignified death from AIDS, while the life support group echoes his thoughts. Collins, Mark, and Angel protect a homeless woman from police harassment using Mark's camera, but she chastises them because she knows they only did it so Mark can make a name for himself off her situation. 
To lighten the mood, Colin talks about his dream of escaping New York City to open a restaurant in Santa Fe. Soon, Mark leaves to check up on Roger, and while alone, Collins and Angel confess their love for each other. Before the performance, Roger apologizes to Mimi, inviting her to come to the protest and the dinner party his friends are having afterwards. At the same time, police, vendors, and homeless people prepare for the protest. Not too long later, Maureen begins her avant-garde, if not over-the-top, performance. At the post-show party at the Life Cafe, Benny arrives, criticizing the protest and the group's bohemian lifestyle. In response, Mark and all of the cafe's bohemian patrons defiantly rise up to celebrate their way of living. Mimi and Roger each discover that the other is HIV positive and hesitantly decide to move forward with their relationship. Joanne explains that Mark and Roger's building has been padlocked and a riot has broken out. Roger and Mimi, unaware, share their first kiss. Celebration continues, and this is how Act One ends. The cast lines up to sing together before the plot of the second act begins, affirming that one should measure life in love. Afterwards, Mark and Roger gather to break back into their locked apartment with their friends. A new voicemail reveals that Mark's footage of the riot has earned him a job offering at a tabloid news company called Buzzline. The others finally break through the door just as Benny arrives, saying he wants to call a truce, revealing that Mimi, who used to be his girlfriend, convinced him to change his mind. Mimi denies rekindling her relationship with Benny, but Roger is upset and although they apologize to each other, Mimi goes to her drug dealer for a fix. Around Valentine's Day, Mark tells the audience that Roger and Mimi have been living together, but they are tentative with each other. It is also told that Maureen and Joanne are preparing another protest. During rehearsal, Maureen criticizes Joanne's controlling behavior, and Joanne criticizes Maureen's promiscuous mannerisms. They break up dramatically following an ultimatum. It is now spring. Roger and Mimi's relationship is strained by Mimi's escalating heroin usage and Roger's lasting jealousy and suspicion of Benny. Each alone, Roger and Mimi sing of love and loneliness, telling each other how they feel as they watch Collins' nurse angel whose health is declining due to AIDS. An interpretive dance is performed, representing all the couple's sex lives. At the climax of the number, the two former couples break up and Angel suddenly dies. At the funeral, the friends briefly come together to share their favorite moments and memories of Angel, with Collins being the last to reminisce. Mark expresses his fear of being the only one left surviving when the rest of his friends die of AIDS, and he finally accepts the corporate job offer. Roger reveals that he is leaving for Santa Fe, which sparks an argument about commitment between him and Mimi, and between Maureen and Joanne. Collins arrives and admonishes the entire group for fighting on the day of Angel's funeral, causing Maureen and Joanne to reconcile, but not Mimi and Roger. The group shares a sad moment, knowing that between deaths and leaving, their close-knit friendships will be breaking up. Everyone leaves except for Mark and Roger. Mark tries to convince Roger to stay in New York, but Roger, unable to handle Mimi's declining health, becomes angry with Mark and leaves. Mimi returns to say goodbye, overhears everything Roger says, and terrified, agrees to go to rehab, which Benny offers to pay for. Sometime later, both Mark and Roger simultaneously reach an artistic epiphany, as Roger finds his song in Mimi and Mark finds his film in Angel's memory. Roger decides to return to New York in time for Christmas, while Mark quits his office job to devote his efforts to working on his own film. On Christmas Eve, exactly one year having passed, Mark prepares to screen his now-completed film to his friends. Roger has written his song, but no one can find Mimi for him to play it to. The power suddenly blows and Collins enters with handfuls of cash, revealing that he reprogrammed an ATM at a grocery store to provide money to anybody with the code ANGEL. 
Maureen and Joanne abruptly enter carrying Mimi, who had been homeless and is now weak and close to death. She begins to fade, telling Roger that she loves him. Roger tells her to hold on as he plays her the song he wrote for her, revealing the depth of his feelings. Mimi appears to die, but abruptly awakens, claiming to have been heading into a white light before a vision of Angel appeared, telling her to go back and stay with Roger. The remaining friends gather together in a final moment of shared happiness and resolve to enjoy whatever time they have left with each other, affirming that there is truly no day but today. Now, Rent came out in 1996, just six years after playwright, novelist, and activist Sarah Schulman wrote People in Trouble, a book inspired by her real-life love affair and experience living in New York City during the AIDS epidemic. The novel follows a love triangle between a lesbian, a bisexual artist, and her male partner. Things come to a head when the artist stages a performance piece about a Trump-like landlord evicting people from their East Village homes because they have AIDS. The novel also features an interracial gay couple, one of whom dies of AIDS. Scarily similar to Rent, right? Larson, she alleges, took the plot, settings, characters, and themes from her novel, but ultimately gave her no credit. While the heterosexual plot is based on La Boheme, the gay plot is seemingly lifted from People in Trouble. It is said that Larson had read Schulman's book during the development of Rent, and that he said that it had influenced his ideas on his own show. Many argue that the similarities don't equate to deliberate pirating, but Schulman obviously thought so. She even threatened to sue the Larson estate. She never did, but since then, many within the queer and theater communities have called out Larson's appropriation of this lesbian writer's work. When I learned about this recently, my first reaction was to defend Larson. Rent has always had a special place in my heart, so it was difficult for me to acknowledge the writer's shortcomings. But as I researched more, I had to accept that the Shulman-Larson dilemma was just the beginning. Despite my admiration for Rent, there are so many issues, particularly in regards to gender and gender identity, that need to be discussed. To start our conversation of gender and rent, I wanted to talk about the commodification of homosexuality that began in the late 1990s. Now, this was something new to me when I started to research rent and gender, but I stumbled upon this article by John Kenrick, a theater writer, who talks about this newly developed marketing ploy in his article, Our Love is Here to Stay, AIDS and Beyond. He talks about it particularly in regards to film, theater, TV shows, that those types of entertainment media. So in his article, he writes, quote, in an ominous trend, plays and films of the mid to late 1990s begin to put forward a straight authored view of AIDS and homosexuality, one that condescended to gays, but reassured straight audiences. End quote. Now, at the time, films, stage plays, TV shows alike were depicting straight characters as the real heroes in the battle against AIDS and homophobia at the time. And unfortunately, Rent was no exception. It took a straight white male character, Mark, who was not afflicted with AIDS, and placed him at the center of the narrative. The character of Mark kind of reminds me of Larson himself, actually, um, because Larson was also a straight white male at the time a lot of people just assumed that Larson was a gay man or a part of the LGBTQ community, and they assumed that his sudden death was actually a result of being diagnosed with AIDS or HIV, when in actuality he suffered an aortic dissection. He actually passed away unexpectedly the morning of Rent's first preview performance off-Broadway, and I think that's why his death is so memorable. To get back to our discussion of the commodification of homosexuality, 
we're literally seeing Rent through Mark's eyes. He is the one narrating and directing the musical through his camera, you know, as the filmmaker. For example, we start the musical off with our first song, and Mark sings, quote, December 24th, 9 p.m., Eastern Standard Time. From here on in, I shoot without a script. See if anything comes of it instead of my old shit. First shot, Roger etc. Like our conversation of Evita, where Che is the narrator telling the story of Ava Perone's life, we're seeing the lives of Mimi, of Roger, of Angel, of Collins through Mark's perspective. And he doesn't have to struggle through having AIDS, being part of the LGBTQ community. He's just witnessing it and telling us what's going on. We aren't really hearing from the other characters themselves. I think author Sarah Schulman says it best. Um, I have a quote here where she says, quote, the fact that the straight white male is the protagonist is ultimately the problem. While fake stories about AIDS that make straight people feel good are the most public narrative, Reaping huge financial rewards, Oscars, Pulitzers, and whatnot, real gay people and real people with real AIDS are on an entirely different consumer pipeline, invisible to straight people. I don't know if this was Larson's intention. I, I'm going to bet it was. But by placing a straight character at the center of this story, it appeals to straight audiences and completely disregards the experiences and lifestyles and struggles of the gay and LGBTQ community. Additionally, by placing Mark at the musical's center, we're meant to like kind of pity him as an audience. You know, he's the one trying to constantly keep the friend group together mostly because he can't bear to see his friends succumb to AIDS. We probably kind of identify with him, like being empathetic. You know, we no one wants to lose their friends. But also, why are we pitying Mark when Mark isn't afflicted with AIDS? When Mark doesn't have to think constantly like Roger or Mimi or Collins or Angel about actually dying? Yeah, it's sad that your friends are dying and you're the only one that's going to survive, but you're going to survive. And when Mark makes this realization in the show, it's right after Angel's funeral and he's afraid that he's going to be the only one left out of his friend group. And then what does he do? He goes and is, uses that as a motivation to go take that corporate job, either to distract himself from his fears or he's using the loss of his friends as like a motivator to get a better life. Either way, this is nothing new. You know, for decades, we've seen different forms of media and real life examples of men being portrayed as the quote unquote white saviors, you know, or at the as the main characters of our stories who are there to help the less fortunate. And unfortunately, Mark is that character in Rent. This is like one of the most glaring issues that I seemingly missed in my, you know, eight, ten years of having watched Rent. I was even in a performance of Rent. I think I was just so blinded by the seemingly quote-unquote inclusive cast of characters that I never realized that Larson literally places a straight white male at the center of a story about the LGBTQ community and AIDS. For our next topic of discussion, I want to address the depiction of the AIDS slash HIV epidemic in Rent. Now, by the time that pieces like Angels in America and Philadelphia were premiering in the early 1990s, the AIDS crisis had already been transformed by grassroots political action. But the depiction of gay life and living with AIDS remained sad and alienated. As Schulman states, quote, to have those pieces depict alone, abandoned gay men with AIDS who had no political movement and no community support was absolutely the opposite of what had already occurred. 
end quote. Now, when Larson comes on the scene in 96, Rent does rewrite this narrative, but only slightly. The musical emphasizes finding community through the various support groups that Angel and Collins and Mark go to. Um, and it talks about building your own family through friendships and surrounding yourself with loved ones. This way of thinking that you get to choose your family and your friends and who you surround yourself with is kind of like a modern motto for the LGBTQ community. You don't have to surround yourself with negative people just because they're your blood relatives. You get to choose to surround yourself with positive people who are there to uplift you and support you no matter what. And Rent does kind of talk about that. While Rent's narrative is a little more hopeful, it doesn't just depict gay men as dejected or abandoned or living this sad life. It really doesn't change change the narrative, the overall narrative, all that much. Those who suffer and die as a result of the virus are still queer characters, despite there being straight characters with AIDS in the story. While Mimi, Roger, Collins, and Angel all have contracted HIV in one way or another, the only person that dies in Rent, the only person that Larson kills off, is Angel the Latina quote-unquote drag queen and lets the heterosexual couple live. When you look at it, you start to wonder, like, who are we valuing in this narrative? By killing off the only, one of the only gay characters, with HIV in particular, we aren't really valuing them as a character. Although Angel is like the most lively, most likable character in the bunch, she unfortunately has to be the one that dies. Like, it's obvious that Larson is valuing heterosexual couples like he's valuing you know, to go back to our discussion of Mark as the lead character, he's valuing straight characters over gay characters. And again, a story about the AIDS epidemic, which, you know, primarily targeted the gay community. I want to bring up a quote from our friend Kenrick, who we talked about before. Um, but just a precursor to this quote, the term fag is used. I'm using it as a direct quote. I would never, ever refer to anybody in that way. Um, but Kenrick states, quote, many gay theater lovers had hoped that killing off a fag before the final curtain was a thing of the past, but it was still acceptable enough to win a Pulitzer Prize for drama and a Tony for best musical. Pity, end quote. Now, in the years following Rent, queer characters were still being portrayed negatively through various forms of media. In one of my classes at Rutgers, actually, we were talking about the depiction of the LGBTQ community in TV and film in particular, and we looked at the GLAAD report from 2012 that analyzed 10 years of transgender images on television, and this report found that more than half were either negative or defamatory depictions. Specifically, at least 40% of the time, trans characters were depicted as victims, 20% were portrayed as sex workers which was the most common profession among trans characters, and at least 61% of the cataloged episodes and storylines contained anti-transgender slurs, language, and dialogue. Now, I definitely think that TV and film has become more inclusive in recent years. It just doesn't negate the fact that for many years there were so many unjust portrayals of the LGBTQ community on the small screen, on the big screen, on the stage. It just doesn't excuse it. Speaking of trans characters, our last talking point for today's episode focuses on Angel, her gender expression, and Larson's label of quote-unquote drag queen. Now in the libretto, Angel is described as a drag queen and is even referred to that way by Mark. 
Her bubbly personality, extravagant outfits, and flashy makeup definitely resemble modern-day drag queens. And at the time, it was a big deal to include a character like Angel. Her existence made an imprint on pop culture in the 90s and was a huge victory for positive representation in media for drag queens. But the victory never truly belonged to drag queens to begin with. Over the years, the perception of Angel among queer fans of the musical has transformed into a heated conversation about her identity. Today, many would argue that Angel's gender would be more accurately described as either gender non-conforming or as a trans woman for a few reasons, and I want to get into a couple of those reasons right now. To begin, her daily expression looks very little like a drag queen's. There is a really interesting article on out.com from writer Charlene Incarnate. Her article is titled Angel's Gender Identity is Rent's Most Enduring Mystery Um, and in it she discusses the character's everyday appearance stating quote Angel presents fully on femme for seemingly mundane occasions. She hangs out in Mark and Roger's apartment in full drag. She's at the AIDS life support meeting in full drag and most notably she's in full drag as she engages in intimacy on a date with her new lover Tom Collins. There's good reason to interpret Angel's expression not as being a drag queen who is seen both in and out of costume, but instead as a trans woman or something like one. End quote. While I haven't kept up with drag culture in a while, I understand how difficult, time-consuming, and exhausting it is to be in full drag all the time. To do so most days for the most humdrum occasions means Angel is doing this for more than just outward appearances. You know, Incarnate says that this type of commitment suggests that Angel has an immense personal cause for doing so. It isn't just some type of act she's putting on, she's doing it for herself. It's personal for her. Additionally, while Angel is alive, she is constantly referred to by she, her, hers pronouns by her friends. It isn't until after her passing that Mark and even Collins refers to Angel as a he. What makes Angel's friends so confused about her identity in the wake of her death is somewhat of a plot hole. Unfortunately, Angel is frozen somewhere in gender limbo, leaving Rent heads perplexed for decades to come. As much as I love Rent, Larson really missed the mark when writing Angel's character. Incarnate says it best when she writes, quote, Rent misses an opportunity to positively represent trans women and full-time gender non-conforming individuals by virtue of being written by a straight man who didn't actually know enough drag queens or trans people to distinguish between them. And in leaving one of Broadway's most beloved characters in a gender limbo, leaves young trans girls disheartened of her glory, end quote. As a diehard fan of Rent, it was not easy for me to recognize its many shortcomings. But as we discussed in last week's episode, it's okay to love and support creative works in spite of their faults. Until now, I truly found no issues with Rent. I would probably defend it up and down if I needed to. Now, I see its many defects and will hold Larson accountable for his decisions. It doesn't mean I can't still sit down with a bowl of popcorn, however, and a box of tissues to enjoy this heartbreaking narrative. Well, that's it for this episode. What has been your favorite contemporary age musical discussed in Curtain Call? I'd be lying if I didn't say mine was Rent. I'm sad to say that next week will be our last episode of this series. 
Unfortunately, I have had to make the difficult decision to condense the last two episodes into one as I have had an extremely full plate recently. So instead of having an episode focusing on the 2000s and an episode dedicated to the 2010s, we're just going to smush them together. And while I'm bummed that we aren't going to be able to talk about two really awesome musicals, I think my new pairing works really well together, but I'll let you be the judge of that. Coming up next week on Curtain Call. Next week, we will be bridging the gap between two Broadway eras. The contemporary era ended with the opening of Rent in 1996, making way for the new modern era, a time when anything goes. The modern era brought us classics such as Hairspray, Mamma Mia, Wicked, Avenue Q, and many more. With so many amazing shows to choose from, selecting musicals for next week's episode was no easy task. In my original outline for Curtain Call, our 2000s podcast was devoted to the 2002 Tony Award-winning show, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and the outstanding 2005 musical adaptation of The Color Purple. Ultimately, I decided to keep The Color Purple. As for our second musical, I went with a production that opened just after the end of the modern era. When Lin-Manuel Miranda's smash hit Hamilton opened in 2015, Broadway began an undefined era that we are currently living in today. Initially, I wanted our 2010s episode to focus on one musical from the modern era and one from this postmodern era, but it made the tough call and went with the latter show. So the 2010s musical we will be talking about next week is the critically acclaimed 2016 production of Waitress. But dreams are elusive The kind we've gotten used to is Nothing I can feel Nothing I can hope Nothing I can have Dreams come and they go While I am obviously upset to end this series so abruptly, I think concentrating our last episode on the color purple in Waitress will be quite beneficial. I don't want to jinx it, but it could possibly be our best episode yet. Like this week's episode, the color purple and Waitress share common themes. For instance, both shows deal with the difficult subject of domestic abuse, the power of strong female relationships, breaking traditional gender roles, and self-empowerment. Additionally, both musicals touch upon intimate relationships and affairs. Waitress a little more than the color purple. Lastly, both shows boast female-centered casts that are actually quite diverse. Personally, I think this is going to be a great way to end Curtain Call. I've been a fan of Waitress ever since it came out, and ever since I read The Color Purple my senior year of high school, I've always appreciated it. Both narratives are extremely inspiring to me, and I hope they're inspiring to you too. That's a wrap on today's podcast. I am your host, Jamie Corder, and thank you again for tuning into Curtain Call. Curtain Call is available through the Apple Podcasting app and Spotify. New episodes are uploaded every week. We'll see you next time.